monsters, madness, and magic. Welcome to the Monsters, Madness, and Magic podcast. I am Justin, joined by my co-hosts Daniel and David. And this evening, hey Daniel, hey David. What's up? Hello. We're joined by a very special guest, master builder, master mason, explorer, road scholar, geomythologist, and teacher, Mr. Randall Carlson. Randall, how the hell are you? I have to admit, I'm doing quite well there, Justin. Um, <laughs> yes, I am. In That's spite good. of everything, I'm doing quite well. That's it's good, good to be able to report, because to be honest, I haven't always been able to report that. Great. I'm glad you're doing well. So, you're aware of many hats. So let's start at the beginning. Uh, what's your origin story with the unexplored, the unexplained, sort of digging beneath the underbelly of mainstream thought? Uh, you're known as a rogue scholar. So where did this fascination begin? When you were a kid, did your father kind of lead you in that direction? I would definitely say it was when I was a kid. It was, um, gosh, it's hard to pinpoint the exact day. Uh, but I would say I was probably seven years old about the time that I began to really get fascinated with the idea of alternatives to normal existence. Um, I, yeah, about that time, you know, I was a country boy, grew up in the country, a lot of nature, a lot of farms around, um, which is always good, I guess, from one standpoint. So, you know, rural Minnesota. Mm. So, you know, Hicksville, um, <laughs> But yeah, we, we lived on a lake. So I grew up, you know, fishing, canoeing, swimming, um, working on the neighbor's farms, uh, camping out, outdoor stuff, a lot of that, you know, but I was also an avid reader. And uh, from about the time when I actually learned to read, which was somewhere between seven and eight, you know, um, and uh, I always liked the macabre and the unusual, that kind of thing. Um, I think we talked about a little bit, Justin, in terms of, you know, what you guys are into. Um, I was drawn to, let's see, I recall it was probably a Saturday and I'm sure you guys know well this story, but around 1958 universal released their catalog of classic monster movies sure. the, and um, released it to television. And it was weird, but they, had a show that came on right after the Saturday morning cartoons that was uh, the the classic Universal Monster movies. So I remember sitting there in front of the TV, we'd probably just watched, you know, some Bugs Bunny cartoons or, you know, Mighty Mouse or whoever uh, was the, uh, was ever, whatever the final, uh, um, whatever it might have been. And then it came on and it was... Um, the Werewolf of London, and uh, yeah, the original 1935 with Henry Hull as the werewolf, and I don't know if you guys have seen it. I think you're nodding your heads. I think you, you've seen it. Um, yeah. uh, you know, it starts out, he's in Tibet uh, with, his, with his team of porters, and he's in search of the, uh, the rare, uh, was it the Mariposa plant? Yeah. Yeah, that was it. Blooms and moonlight. Blooms in the moonlight, right. And uh, I was watching, you know, with a, somewhat interested in the story. They're, you know, they're hiking along there and, and they're going up the mountains. And his his um, his associate there, his colleague is with him. And all of a sudden they start having the weird, um, they, they were having a hard time moving because of some invisible force or power, maybe some magnetic power, something that was in the rocks. And, uh, so his, his friend 
gets left behind and he moves ahead and he comes to a big boulder and he sees the plant there blooming. So he goes and he kneels down and he's about to clip a sample of it. And then the boulder behind him, the werewolf (laughs) head raises above. And that was a life-changing moment for me. Hmm. From that point on, I was, I lost interest in cartoons. (laughs) (laughs) It was monsters, monsters, monsters. So uh, you know, in quick succession after Werewolf of London, it was the original Boris Karloff Frankenstein, the Bella Lugosi Dracula, the Claude Rains Invisible Man, et cetera, et cetera. And I was hooked. I you know, wouldn't miss those monster movies. I planted myself there in front of the TV every Saturday. And then that ran its course. And I, from there, there was, we, we my parents split up and we were living in rural Minnesota. And my mother moved me and my brothers back to Pineville, Louisiana. And I was in my, uh, I guess I would have been nine years old. It was probably the summer of 1960 at that point. And there was a place called Jack's Supermarket. And I was at that point really getting into comic books. And I would get a little bit of money every week. And I would pedal up to Jack's Supermarket and buy um, it was probably the early days. I'm guessing it was like the very early days of Marvel comics. I think they were, yeah, that sounds about right. Sounds about right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But one day I was in there and looking on the magazine stand and there was an issue of famous monsters of film land. You recall that? Are you guys aware? That sounds familiar. Yeah. I, I thought David Skull did that, but I don't think that's uh, quite. It was right Forrest J. Ackerman was editor and publisher gotcha and he would write reviews and there were photographs and um you know stories about the the movie yeah yeah i know that book yeah yeah it was a magazine and so i got probably for christmas i don't remember but it was the first magazine subscription i ever had in my life famous monsters of Filmland, and you know then they would have tips in there like how to make yourself up like a monster so one uh one halloween i was probably a little older maybe like 11 or something and uh so i was going to go as frankenstein so i made a paper mache kind of a helmet with the heavy brow ridge and the scar (laughs) running up there you know and the and the and the the electrodes in the neck and that was what i went for halloween so um and then you guys recall the uh the aurora monster models I'm not oh. familiar. Oh my no, gosh, no. guys, guys. I'm not okay. familiar. It's a good thing you got me on your show. Exactly. <laughs> Educate us. Yeah. Well, <laughs> the Aurora monster models, they had some kind of an exclusive contract with universal. And so they made plastic assemble yourself models of all of the, the great monsters, right? Mm-hmm. Their wolf, they had the wolf, they, their werewolf was the wolf man, the Lon Chaney wolf man. Mm-hmm. But they had the Frankenstein, they had Bella Lugosi, and they would be on stands and you would assemble them like, you, you know, I guess boys don't do that much anymore, build plastic models. Um, but I that was a big it. thing back in the 50s and 60s for, for I guess, girls did too, but boys was definitely a boys thing mainly. And um, so I had the full set and they were all, you know, on my shelves just like behind me i had shelves except all my shelves had monster models on them and i would carefully paint them you know and get them try to get all the details just right you know so i would have the wolf man and i would make sure i had the you know red paint dripping from his mouth you know like you just fresh kill um 
and you know dracula you know too with the with the blood coming from his i was really into painting them with the blood on them and so uh yeah i had a full collection of those if you look them up online i think now they're probably collectors editions i i don't know if those models are still produced or not um I think Daniel is checking it out for us. Yeah, I'm looking up because I, the way you describe it, I've probably seen them. I just didn't know that that's what they were. You know what I mean? Uh huh. Yeah. The Aurora Mortal Kits. Aurora A U R like Bo- Aurora Borealis, mm-hmm. right? So yeah, I was I was obsessed, and then fifth and sixth grade, I started drawing a comic book for my friends and it would be laboriously hand drawn. I would draw it with the panels and everything. And then I would do an elaborate, you know, colored in with my colored pencils cover and all that. And I called it screams from the dungeon. Oh, that's all nice. <laughs> <laughs> so those would, laying around. No, it's I gosh. Nope. Along with my, I, somewhere, you know, I lived, you know, with two parents not living together and I moved. It was a lot of back and forth growing up. Somewhere along the line, they, I don't know where we ah. parted, but yeah. How many of those of, do you think you knocked out? The models or the no, comics? No, the, uh, the comics. I would eight or 10, 12, maybe. <laughs> it was over a period of about a year. I would get one done about a month. And of course, I think there was only one issue of each one because you know, by the time I finished drawing it, but um, yeah, so I would do these illustrated stories. I don't. And, and as it was about that time, I discovered uh, some of the first books came out um, dealing with things like Bigfoot and Loch Ness. And so I quickly got interested in that. I remember one of the, one of the story panels I did was a Bigfoot story. Um, yeah, they were always fun. So yeah, it went from there. I, I kept my, my avid interest really pretty much up till about 13 or 14. And then, uh, well, if I'm going to be completely candid and honest my obsession and love with monsters kind of gave way to my uh obsession with girls what can i say <laughs> so, the most guys you know what i mean <laughs> yeah so that's kind of what happened for a few years there um and then of course by the time i got of age you know old enough 17 18 uh you know then the the, the late 60s were in full bloom so i got sucked into all of that and there's some interesting stories there not necessarily directly related to monsters and horror and that sort of thing um but uh those were very interesting times and i think i i plunged right into the thick of that the 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 second i got old enough uh only because of my interest in anything alternative to the normal right to the normal uh, you know, reality that most people were inhabited. So I went down that road of, you know, consciousness alteration and all of that and um, led me into some interesting places. I've always been interested in mythology mm-hmm. and the, the, the legacy of stories that have been handed down through the ages. Mm-hmm. Uh, my father was uh, pure Swedish. Uh, my grandparents were from the, the, the uh, Swedish immigrants on my, on my, dad's side um and i was remember oh gosh nine years old i was nine years old because we had we had moved from minnesota to louisiana the summer of 1960 i started at a new school uh in the fall of 1960 and in their library they had a 
great collection of books on mythology, both the Greek and uh, Norse mythology. So I got really, really fascinated by mythology, particularly the, 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 the Norse tales of Ragnarok and the Midgard serpent and Thor and, and, and all of that. You were from too. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, there was that, 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 you know, and, and those stories of course still fascinate me. And plumbing into the depths of this, the, the mythical legacy um, always yields new insights and new things of interest. So, um, and, you know, let's see, I would say that, well, let's see, I never really lost my interest because as, <clears throat> as you know, and, and also, you know, sci-fi, mm-hmm. um, my uh, period, my junior year in high school, it was a year we had moved, I'd been living in Minnesota we moved to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, my mother had. So we go down there summer of 1967 to, to see my mom. And she is working with WBRZ television, which was, I think maybe the second largest television station in Louisiana at the time. And she was kind of a, a program director. I think I forget what her official title was, but whenever celebrities or musicians or, you know, important people or whatever would come to town, she was tasked with let's, you know, getting them their yeah. limousines, getting in their hotels, setting up the press conferences and all that. So we come down and within short order, I find myself partying with the who Herman's <laughs> hermits blues Magoos, who I'm sure you've never heard of, but they were a kick-ass rock band. Uh, we ain't got nothing yet. Check that out. That's, that's a great old rock song. We ain't got nothing yet. All right, I just uh, made a note to check that out. Blues Magoos. Blues, Blues Magoos. Magoos. In fact, I think they're usually credited with being the first rock band that used the term psychedelic oh, okay. uh, in the title of, I think, their first album. So, needless to say, um, I've, got, I've got, okay, my rural hick <laughs> life up in Minnesota or this really cool life with my mom in Baton Rouge, you know, where, <laughs> so we ended up, me and my brothers, we ended up staying with my mom there and i started a new school uh as my junior year in high school in baton rouge louisiana and the very first day i'm in my homeroom class and i get sent down to the office because the homeroom teacher didn't like my long hair which was probably about as long as david's hair (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> if that i don't know if he's got a ponytail back there behind him little one. oh yeah I'm, oh okay i see he does yeah what you got one too daniel yes uh yeah <laughs> a, a rock in the main okay and justin as well huh yeah we all got the main <laughs> yeah i had a pretty good one going for a while. I, mine's getting long again probably <laughs> probably about ponytail time again but anyways so day number one was bad and it just went downhill from there and so I got, you know, that was my year of getting into a lot of trouble. And, uh, when I came the next summer, I, I had to go back to Minnesota. I just, because, well, for one thing, my younger brother got in so much trouble that he was basically told, look, we're going to send you away to reform school, or you can leave the state of Louisiana. So wow. we ended up leaving the state of Louisiana. Whoa. And, uh, <clears throat> anyways, that was, uh, there was a reason I was going to talking about going to Baton Rouge. Um, and I don't really remember where I was going with that, but other than the fact that, Hey, I got to party with the who. Okay. That's the important part of that story. That was the important part of that story. (laughs) 
you know, there was something that'll probably come back to me just, <clears throat> but we went back to Minnesota the next summer and I, you know, I had always been a fairly good kid. I was a trickster and a sort of mischievous, but I'd been always been a good kid and I did pretty good in school, you know, and now I just completely bombed out. You know, I like probably, I started skipping school after Christmas vacation. And then before the year was out, I would, um, you know, my mom would get up and go to work and I would pretend like I was going off to school. And then I would go hang out with my buddy in the woods all day. And, uh, at the end of the day, I'd come home and pretend like I'd been at school. Um, but, uh, anyhow, I had to come back to Minnesota the next year. And it was at that point that I kind of, you know, that, that was an important transition point because up to that living in the country, everywhere I went, you know, would be, on foot or we'd ride our bikes, you know, now I get to Louisiana and all my friends have cars and I'm hanging out with, you know, my buddies with cars going out on dates, which, you know, was a new experience for me. Right. And, uh, getting back to Minnesota the next summer, uh, really was 1968 and everything was going blade like blazes then, you know, the whole, you know, in a way, kind of like what's happening now, there was a polarization in the country, you know, you had the, you know, uh, the hard hats versus the hippies, you know, battling it out in the streets. And, you know, you had the, the anti-war protests and of course you had the draft and that was, uh, that sucked. Um, I bet it did. Yeah. Oh yeah, it did. And, uh, yeah, some of my older buddies got drafted and sent off to Nam and, uh, didn't work out so well for them. Some of them who didn't come back, some who did and basically came back like in a shoe box hmm. or they came back and they were, messed up in the head from what they had been through. And, uh, I managed through a fluke. I, I had, that was in the days of the, um, the lottery. Remember there was a lottery and they would, right. <clears throat> you'd watch the TV and they would have just like, you know, whatever, you know, Powerball or whatever. And they would, uh, you know, they would have the, the thing going and the little ping pong balls would shoot up and one yeah. would shoot out and they'd pull it up and they go, okay, number 121. Okay, so you count forward and number 121 was whatever that date was, right? So if you were uh, on, if that was uh, your birthday, you know, so 120, you were definitely going. 100 and from the next 120, you were probably, your chances were about 50-50. And then if you were above that, you you got off the hook. So I had a low number and uh, that really sucks. But there was a fluke, kind of a, you know, by the grace of God or whatever, um, uh, uh, why not? Well, this is no big secret anymore. I've told this story before. So I got busted by a couple of plainclothes cops who planted a joint on me and then proceeded to, to arrest me. So I went to jail and was a pending felon when I got called up for the draft. So they wanted to know, like, I don't know if you've ever seen the, the movie Alice's Restaurant with, with, um, all right, I, got, I can see already, I got some cultural catching up for you guys to do um, <laughs> uh, alice's restaurant it's um arlo guthrie son of famous balladeer woody guthrie folk singer and all that anyways there's a scene in there where he he has to go for the draft and he'd been arrested for littering and uh you know he they ask him hey kid you ever been arrested and he says well yeah for littering and then he makes this it's a humorous take on all of this and and he's sitting there on the group w bench with um you know, mother rapers and father rapers and murderers and all the, how he describes them. And then 
when he says, you know, that he got busted for littering, they're all like, oh, and they move away from him, you know, and <laughs> it was just like that for me. I was there on the Group W bench, and um, they wanted to know I'd ever been arrested, and in fact, my case was pending. Because of that arrest, they decided I was an undesirable, and I was didn't get sent over to Vietnam. I went to court maybe three times, possibly four. I don't remember exactly. And the cops that busted me never did show up. Um, so the judge kept rolling it back a month. And then finally, when they didn't show up, he calls me back into his chamber and he says, basically this, I tell you what, I'll, you've been a good kid. You don't have any record. Tell you what, I'm going to find you a hundred dollars, stay out of trouble for a year. And this will go off your record. And I said, Sounds good to me. Here's the hundred bucks. <laughs> well, in the meantime, I got a one Y classification and I was home free. That's probably nice. the luckiest joint you've ever had. Well, yeah, I didn't get to smoke it though, <laughs> so, <laughs> but no, but here's, here's the thing. I didn't have, I remember I was, it was like one o'clock in the morning. I was standing at a bus stop, hoping I hadn't missed the last bus. Um, I'd been out all day selling newspapers. I had a pouch around my shoulder. I would buy news. You'd buy a bundle of newspapers for 10 bucks for a hundred of them. So you paid 10 cents each for them. You would stand out on the street and you would hawk the newspapers for 25 cents a piece. So you made 15 bucks. So, you know, when you're a, a kid, I guess I was 18 then. And, you know, money back then was, um, you know, you, you paid 35 cents maximum for a gallon of gas. So, uh, you know, if I could do two of those in a day, I was doing pretty good. Right. Shoot, so, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So that I was standing at the bus stop, hoping that I hadn't, hadn't, uh, missed the last bus. And I thought, well, if I'll just, maybe there'll be some traffic. And back in those days, you know, you people hitchhiked a lot. There was hitchhiking everywhere. You, you, it was just sort of a ubiquitous thing. It was part of the culture, people hitchhiking. Um, so I, well, maybe I'll be able to hitchhike. And then, you know, I, I, these guys come cruising around the block and, um, I immediately could tell by the way they were looking at me and the two of them that they were plain clothes. And I also knew that they were going to circle a block and come back and, um, and harass me, which they did. And, um, <laughs> so, but you know, afterwards I often thought to myself, I sure would, I should look those guys up and give them a heartfelt thanks, uh, because you guys might've saved my life. Mm -hmm. But interestingly, I remember when, when I, it was a Friday night, I spent the weekend, they let me out around noon on Sunday, I mean on Monday, and when they let me out, they gave me a copy of the rest report. I was standing on a street called Broadway, and a block down was an intersection with a street called Washington. This was in Minneapolis. And I got the rest report, and officers so-and-so and so-and-so, and, -so and, -so, and they described how they're driving up Washington Street, and they see the suspect staggering down the middle of the street the road staggering. I thought yeah staggering <laughs> possibly from the weight of all those newspapers right That's what, yeah <laughs> so yeah um but i would say that uh okay i know where i was going with it my refuge that year that i was getting in so much trouble in, in baton rouge my refuge was science fiction i started reading science fiction up to this time i've been an avid reader i read the lord of the rings trilogy when it came out in the purloined ace edition the unauthorized ace edition nice. and i was probably in eighth grade and they were they were recalled i understand that the that those ace unauthorized editions copies now are worth a lot of money hmm. but i had the three of them um 
all three of them. And that was at the time when I read those in eighth grade, I think that was my greatest reading accomplishment was getting through the entire trilogy. Um, <laughs> those were huge. That's a good accomplishment because his books are boring as hell. <laughs> well, when you're right, in, they are. Them. Come on, I we can admit them. it now. I know they're great. I love them too, but they are boring as hell. <laughs> <laughs> well, and when you're 14, now I could probably appreciate them on, on another level altogether. Right. But when you're 14, so I was, you know, <laughs> I was bound and determined though that I was going to get through them all, and I did. So, but you know, I was a wide reader. I loved reading all kinds of stuff, historical fiction. I loved historical fiction. Um, you know, I, Ray Bradbury, anything by Ray Bradbury, um, you know, and of course, after my, 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 my interest in monsters, I read the original Dracula by Bram, Bram Stoker mm -hmm. at least three times. I loved Bram Stoker's Dracula. And, uh, so I read a lot of books like that. I read the invisible man by HG Wells, or was it Arthur Conan Doyle? No, it was HG. That's what I thought. Yeah. And, and Art, speaking of Arthur Conan Doyle, The Lost World, um, uh, you know, the, the entire, we had at, in the library, we had the complete Sherlock Holmes. Nice. So by the time I was, say, in sixth grade, I had gone through completely Sherlock Holmes, you know. Um, and then, of course, I failed to mention, which I don't know how I could have failed to mention that, so it's time to mention it now. The other thing that was right there, paralleling and dovetailing sometimes was my obsession with dinosaurs. I had one of those. You had one of those? Yeah. Very much so. Dinosaurs and cowboys. Dinosaurs and cowboys. Yeah. Yeah. Dinosaurs and cowboys. That's a pretty good mix. Um, <laughs> and there actually was a movie that was, let me see, who was it? What was the movie? It was uh, Ganji that was dinosaurs and cowboys with, with Ray Harrahausen special effects. That's another one I'm not familiar with. I'm writing down the Val Valley of the Ganji. I think this is what it was. Ganji, something very close to that. Um, probably early, early to mid sixties. And it was Ray Harrahausen. Um, you guys know who Ray Harrahausen is? Oh yeah. Okay, good. Uh, you know, stop motion anime. He was the man. Mm -hmm. He was the man from probably the late 40s or early 50s right up until the 80s um you know pioneered the he was a, he was a uh, an apprentice to uh willis o'brien who did the animation for the original king kong and uh he also did the silent version of the lost world mm. and invented pretty much you know brought the 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 process of stop motion animation to a, to a high art so very anything having to do with dinosaurs i was totally immersed and then of course my model building i had all of the models of the dinosaurs mm. you know pretty much and could name them i knew which ones were the predators which ones were the herbivores which ones were jurassic which ones were cretaceous um so i was very interested in dinosaur movies and of course none of the dinosaur movies were ever back then were accurate they completely mixed up their chronologies their timelines and you know you had cavemen living with you know, Cretaceous dinosaurs and stuff. And, you know, I, I, I quick, by the time I was in junior high school, I was like, I'd become a real severe critic. Wait a second. No, 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 no. Wait a second. That's a Jurassic dinosaur there. That's not, doesn't belong in a Cretaceous. That's so, hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, I would say, yeah, with that, those kinds of interests, you know, then, then, um, gosh, would have been, um, 
the, I moved back to Minnesota summer of 68. And in that fall, uh, 2001, a space odyssey came out and went and saw that movie, um, led to reading the book by, uh, Arthur C. Clarke, I believe it was who wrote the book. And, uh, within literally probably a month of seeing that and, and spending a whole year immersed. I just, that year, 67 to 68, I was just immersed in science fiction, saw that movie. And then I think it was about a year later, uh, not a year later, a week later, I took my first, you know, what my first, uh, adventure, my first Ah, journey, my first, your first trip, my first trip. Yeah. So I was kind of prepared psychically, I think for that somewhat. Uh, as much as you can be. Um, but then, you know, as the seventies come around, um, I, you know, I still remember when, uh, the exorcist came out in 73, the, the first original exorcist. Were you tripping when that happened? No, I wasn't. (laughs) Okay, good. That's good. Yes. Well, actually, (laughs) actually I take that back because I do remember before I went to the movie, I did smoke a bowl of hash oh that's a a brave man am i allowed to say that you can say whatever you want oh okay okay (laughs) there was once a time not so long ago when i would i would not have said that excuse me for a minute all right i gotta let somebody through the studio here for a second okay all right i've got that door set up there you can see oh gosh we'll (laughs) fix it in post yeah we're not live okay we're not live all right (laughs) take the dog with you (laughs) <laughs> she's a wonderful dog but she'll want to she'll want to come in and be the star of the show yeah i had to kick all mine out yeah so um anyways where was i before we were so rudely interrupted uh, took a trip yeah saw, took a trip and then took a trip to see the extras oh yeah so oh, that no. really kind of revived my interest in the genre i bet you know um so you know subsequent to that i mean you know of course then star wars came out a few years later um I was a very much a Star Wars fan of the first three. Anyway, I'm not so much of everything that's devolved around that since then. Um, right. But uh, of course, then Alien was a milestone. Um, the the first the Ridley Scott Alien was a was a milestone in horror. The blending of high horror and sci-fi. So I really really liked that. You know that convergence of those of those two genres uh, was right up my alley. So I loved it, and then of course I really liked the sequel. I was going to ask if you prefer Alien Two to Alien One. I can't say that I after my own heart. It's hard to say that I. You know, I mean, they were both groundbreaking in their own right, and um, you know, I probably, you know, I liked there was more action obviously in Aliens, which I liked, and you know, uh, Sigourney Weaver played such a kick-ass heroine that uh and i you know the characters you know i found the characters in aliens more accessible than the characters in the first alien you know it almost seemed like the first one they were just there to be killed off by the alien you know but still it was it was groundbreaking in its own right and then um uh loved the aliens then alien 3 came out and i was disappointed i've tried to go back look (laughs) at it in in its own right sorry but it, you know, it just, my main disappointment, I've, I've subsequently watched it. And I thought, you know, it, it's a, it's a, you know, it's not a bad film. I, I enjoyed it watching it as long as I didn't, as long as I didn't look at it in the context of the whole story arc that had developed up to that point. Cause it was, you know, I was really expecting something that built upon 
right. what had already been laid out. And it was clear that it's just took a right angle turn and, 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 um, yeah. And just she, shat on it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's fine. You can admit it. I, me and my son were talking about that too. It just, yeah, it just took a big shit right in your face. That's just, <laughs> and you think that's bad. Then the fourth one came out. So yeah, <laughs> I agree. Well, you know, and, and I was entertained by the fourth one as well, but you know, the, I, I thought this is kind of contrived, you know, they have to now bring back, you know, the, 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 um, it was insulting. It is kind of, yeah, I, I was disappointed. Goddamn. Co- sorry. <clears throat> Aliens is my favorite movie, like of my life. And uh-huh. even though I'm more of a supernatural guy, not really a alien kind of person, but to me, that is a perfect movie. So yeah, that fourth one was an insult. <laughs> mm-hmm. It just, it, it was, it was a cool That's movie, but it quality. was, it was also a class example of how to perfectly waste Michael Wincott and Ron mm. Perlman mm-hmm. and uh, what's his name? Hedaya, Dan Hedaya, Dan Hedaya. Yeah. Had to completely waste all of those characters. Brad Dourif as a character actor. And then that other guy who's like a known fame, the one that's like, what's it fucking side me? That guy had to <laughs> completely waste all of that talent by just taking a piece of paper, wiping her ass with it and putting it on the table for Firefly. It would have been a great show for aliens. Mm. It was insult. So this is your show. Not me. <laughs> I agree with you though. Please. You hit a sore spot with Daniel with alien. <laughs> <laughs> well, we won't even mention, of course, now go back. I loved predator, the original predator. Uh-huh. I thought I was always fascinated by that whole kind of man being thrown into, you know, some situation where, you know, uh, well, I remember as a little kid reading, uh, the book, the most dangerous game. I think it was John Buchan. Uh, and made Conrad. An... Joseph Conrad. Yeah. 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 Joseph Conrad. Yeah. And that kind of, that whole genre really, really interested me and actually made a, a movie one of the very early talkies like 1931 or something with i think joel mccray in the leading part um you know they're out they crap they they they're shipwrecked on an island and you know the the the, the host brings him in and it turns out he's a hunter and um you know they escape and so the it's the, him hunting them on the uh, on the island and i always kind of like that so I'll back up a little bit. 72 fall of 72 when deliverance came out in some ways you could almost look at the, the movie deliverance as a horror story. <laughs> you certainly right. would say it is. <laughs> hey, that was up in our neck of the woods. I, uh, I saw that movie kind of young, not super young, but I was always scared of going deep in the woods after that. Yeah. And, and, and in fact, I, you know, I'm living in Decatur, Georgia now and, nice. uh, Thanksgiving of 72, I made my first pilgrimage to Atlanta because my mother was living here and I had two brothers who had also moved here. And my older brother was a rafter. He loved rafting, whitewater rafting. So we get here and he says, Hey, you gotta, I gotta take you to see this movie deliverance. It was, you know, probably one of the big movies in the, in America at that time. And he says, they filmed it up on the Chattooga river, man. And I've been rafting down there and I can show you all the places, you know, where they filmed and all that. But so me and three of my brothers, we all went to see deliverance and I made the same mistake again that I made with uh, the exorcist. (laughs) Same exact mistake. But, uh, you know, I, my, my father was a, uh, when he wasn't 
being a carpenter in his off time, he was a professional canoe racer. So we had canoes. I'd grown up in canoes, right? Um, so I, I loved, you know, the early part of the movie, you know, when they're canoeing down the, 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 the river there to the Kahulawasi, I think it was. And, um, but, you know, you had this, the sense of foreboding that, that something was going to happen really early on when they first make contact with some of the locals there, you know, trying to get just to hire somebody to, to take their, their cars down to the, to the takeout place, you know, and then, and then of course, you know, when, when, uh, John Voigt and, um, the guy who played the, uh, Reynolds, not Burn Reynolds, Ronnie Cox. No, the fort, not who was the Beatty. Ned, Ned Beatty, Ned Beatty. So it's, uh, Ned Beatty and John Voigt are in a canoe together and they've pulled ahead, right? They've left uh, Ron Cox and Burt Reynolds behind. They, they get out, they, they go up in the woods there. And, and then you off kind of between the trees, you just see these two sort of indistinct figures walking, but you know, immediately it's really about to, to, to get bad real quick. You know that, you know, you get the sense of foreboding and then of course what happens, right? But, uh, that movie, was groundbreaking in many respects in oh, terms yeah. of the gritty realism and and you know you know i don't think anybody had ever depicted in a mainstream movie you know male on male rape or this was completely unprecedented and of course john borman interesting filmmaker there um but you know one of the things was that you know you go a lot see a lot of the older movies you know and you it's just obvious you know they're being filmed on a sound stage and you know you know that they're yeah you can tell yeah that's a set the guys are on sets well he wanted to get away from that so there was no studio it was all out in the field um he didn't want he wanted to be able to have close-ups of the actors rather than you know these and now in the days of video you know if you're watching some of the old movies and it's a fight scene you know, when you're watching that there, you know, it's, you see the actor, he's coming up there like this, you know, whoever it might be, Alan Ladd or whoever, you know, and then it, it flashes away and the shadows are kind of in his face. You don't see him. But now with video, you, if you pause it and you look and you go, hey, that's not Alan Ladd. You know, it's just a guy wearing a shirt like Alan Ladd. That's <laughs> obviously not Alan Ladd, right? Well, right. so Borman was wanting to get away from that. So he uh, had all the stunts are being done by by the actor uh, in that movie. Um, and one of the things I recall reading about was that um, they couldn't get insurance because nobody wanted to insure them because of the fact, look, you, you, you got to use stunt man. You can't use the valuable actor. So they went and filmed the whole movie without any insurance. Um, <laughs> and so when you see him going over the waterfall and stuff, that's Burt Reynolds flipping in the air. When you see the oh, guy climbing the cliff at the end, that's John, actually John Voight. And, um, and that was, that was, you know, that was a, a groundbreaking film, uh, by, by going for that level of realism. Yes, sir. But, uh, yeah. And then, uh, of course, Borman did the, uh, Excalibur, which was based upon the Thomas Mallory, uh, story of King Arthur and the Grail quest, um, uh, which I found quite fascinating and really led me into studies of the Grail. And I go, okay, this is, this is interesting stuff. There's some really, really potent themes here. So, uh, led me into really some in-depth studies of the whole grail literature that came out of the middle ages and, um, amazing stuff. That's all I can say about that. Is I got some questions I have noted about the grail that I wanted to ask you. You're welcome to ask. I know, Maybe that, I, can... I know you're a proponent of, uh, that it's an astronomical allegory. Uh, is mm -hmm. that how you also view the Bible? Uh, 
Well, I I view the Bible as pretty much being allegorical, primarily um, symbolical. Um, you know, I think what it is, it's taken. You know, it, it, it's a hodgepodge. You got to bear in mind when you look at the Bible, you're looking at you know multiple authors who are, are you know, if you take the you know the 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 strict uh, you know fundamentalist or evangelical view of it, it's all you know. You don't go well. The guy who wrote you know. Uh, the book of Genesis may or may not have been Moses, but, you know, was that the same guy who wrote Deuteronomy? Was that, you know, who wrote down the prophets, you know, who, you know, obviously whoever compiled the new Testament, different people. So it's a compilation. And, uh, you know, that's kind of, I, I tend to look at the Bible as a, as an inspired document, but I also look at the, um, you know, the Mahabharata as a inspired document. Um, you know, the Zendavesta or the Tao Te Ching. I, you know, my, my, uh, interpretation of, of scriptural, uh, doctrines like that scriptural, um, writings is that when somebody says, well, that's the word of God and it's the only word of God. I say, look, why are you, you know, why do you need to limit God? You know, you know, I go, my response is that, look, I think God probably, you know, dispensed revelations to all kinds of people, all kinds of places in all kinds of times. And there are multiple inspired writing. Um, and so, you know, yeah, I, I've read, I haven't read the Bible from cover to cover, but I've read a lot of it in s- several of the, you know, the book of revelations, I've probably read seven or eight times through, um, you know, some of the old Tef- Testament prophets, Isaiah, particularly, I found interesting. Um, you know, I love the, the book of Psalms and Proverbs. Uh, um, and particularly, I'm interested in in some of the uh, eschatological prophecies, uh, like in the New Testament, for example. And I I, I find that to be um, consistent with a lot of other writings about um, the larger cosmic context of our existence on Earth. So, um, yeah, that's kind of my take on the Bible. I, I consider myself a student of the Bible. I've gone to the level where I'm, you know, I'll get into it, and I've got my uh, my Greek and Hebrew lexicons and my interlinear translation so that if I'm wondering about a particular word, I can go back to the original Greek or the original Hebrew and get into the etymology of it. And oftentimes you'll discover that when you go back to the etymological origins of some of the various terms, you realize that there are alternate uh, translations that would have been available or, or possible. And when you begin to, you know, try some of those substitutions, it leads to a whole different interpretation. A whole new thing. <laughs> <clears throat> That's right. That's right. That's, Daniel is exactly right. And the other thing that intrigued me, which is something I learned back about the mid-70s, was that um, prior to the advent of the Hindu-Arabic numeral system, which came along, I think, around the 5th century AD, uh, in the Semitic languages, the same set of symbols were used not only for the phonetic uh alphabet but also for numerical value and so what that leads you into is that gematria <laughs> gematria daniel that's very impressive. no i am but i appreciate it thank you okay there's always got to be that guy who fucks with you but <laughs> it was too good but i'm sorry please continue <laughs> oh daniel it's okay man i can handle it no you're you're just you're you're talking about stuff that's just right up my wheelhouse and just get excited. Oh, I know, man. Keep going. (laughs) Well, yeah. So keep going. So basically 
what that leads you into is that when you look at the, if we go back into the Hebrew, you know, the, the, the Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, Chet, Vazen, Hertet, Yud, etc. Those are numbers as well as letters. Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta, Epsilon, Phi, etc. Numbers as well as letters. So, you know, this may not strike a chord with anybody as having any particular significance until you realize that behind the words and names and phrases that are being used, there's a whole numerical pattern. There's a, a numerical substrate. And when you get into that, you begin to realize that there is some pretty interesting correspondences here that seem to go way beyond the possibility of coincidence. And it's almost like the literal Bible is really just a vehicle for what's underlying, what's behind the literary images and, and symbols. And then you get into the mathematics, the numbers, the geometry. Um, so yeah, that was something that I really, I discovered around the mid seventies and really, really got fascinated by that. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I don't know if you guys ever read anything, John Michelle, he was the, the late John Michelle. He was a British author who really delved into the meanings of gematria and showed how some of the key numbers that emerge, uh, uh, redundantly once you go behind the literal veil that those numbers show up in a bunch of really interesting places astronomical for example um uh yeah astronomical um geometrical clearly geometrical a lot of geometrical connections uh there's a whole vast uh multi-layered reality behind there that i think has been really uh, overlooked and i've probed into it enough to become convinced that yes there's definitely something happening here that uh has has uh takes this thing to a whole different level but it's for the most part overlooked i mean you know um religious zealots who are traditional christian religions haven't looked at that too much um, because for one thing once you get into the numbers you find some really weird coincidences that mm -hmm. uh, i'll cite an example that comes off the top of my head um the serpent uh, who was more subtle than any beast of the field, the one who in the third chapter of Genesis, you know, uh, approaches Eve and said, has God said thou shalt not eat of every tree in the garden? And she says, yeah, he says, I can't, Jehovah, right, says, I can't eat of, I, I may, of every tree in the garden, I may free us, I may freely eat, except the tree of knowledge of good and evil, uh, Otherwise I'll die. And the serpent says, thou shalt not surely die for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, your eyes shall be opened and ye shall be as the God. And so she looks at the fruit and sees that it's desirable. It's desirable. It's pleasing to the eyes and it has the potential to make one wise. And so she eats thereof. And then if you take, if you're going to take it at face value, what does it say? It says, uh, she was so impressed by whatever she experienced. She then immediately gave it to her husband. He ate. And then as the, the Bible says, the eyes of them both were opened. And then of course they get severely punished, kicked out of paradise. And really when you get down to it, what was their crime? Well, they were desiring wisdom. I mean, that's really, if you take it at face value, but here's what's interesting. If you take the word for serpent that was in the Bible. It's Nahash, right? Nahash. And <clears throat> Nahash was spelled Nun Chet Shin 
in the Hebrew. Nun was 50, Chet was 8, and Sheen was 300. So you add those up, and it gives you a numerical value for the word Nahash, which was the serpent, and it's 358. Now, one of the uh, one of the uh, beliefs of the early Kabbalists, were, which which were the group of mystics that looked at the you know these underlying levels of of scriptural writings, believed that you know you could correlate ideas and concepts and uh, characters from the Bible by looking at the correlation and the patterns of, of number. 358 was an interesting number because, for one thing, 358 is the, the first three values of the Fibonacci sequence, right? I don't know if you know what the Fibonacci sequence is. The Fib uh, David is nodding. Yeah, so this is number 3, 5, and 8, where you add 3 to 5 and you get 8. You add 5 to 8, you get 13. Um, you know, 8 and 13 is is... 20, uh, 21, 21 and 13 is 34, 55, 89, 144. And so the sequence goes, right? Well, this is also the image of the, the phi spiral, right? So if you have uh, a series of squares, and in fact, at some point, I mean, if we could do share screens, I could actually pull up some of these diagrams and we could look at them. But it the 358 generates this phi spiral, right? Where if you, if you draw from the, the center point, outwards, each, uh, let's say, limb of the spiral will increase by those units, 3, 5, 8, 13, 34. And then if you take successive ratios, the limit of those success, successive ratios is what's called the golden section or the divine proportion, which works out to be about 1.618033989 dot, 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 because it goes on forever. It never terminates. It never repeats. Um, so like like the number pi, it, it, right? Um, right? Um, but so three, five, and eight are the first three numbers of that phi spiral, which I find interesting because it sort of relates it to the concept of the serpent's coil. But anyway, so Nahash, 358. Well, if you go a little bit later on in the Bible, there's a prophecy about the Messiah. And the term, uh, the, the, the Hebrew spelling of Messiah, it's Meshiach in, in the Hebrew. So it's Mem, Sheen, Het. Mem, Sheen, Het, and, uh, oh, Mem, Sheen, Yud, Het, Mem, 40, Sheen, 300, Yud, 10, Het, 8. You add them up, what do you get? 358. So the number of the serpent, 358, is the same as the number of the Messiah, 350. So right there, you've got something that go, wait a minute, why are they connected by this number? Is it just coincidental? Well, if that is all the only case you're looking at, you could say, yeah, I'm going to dismiss that because it's coincidental. Or you can go, let me look a little further into this. And then you discover, voila, Pandora's box opens and all of these sub-layers suddenly begin to reveal themselves. And you realize, wait a second, there is undeniably a numerical layer to all of this. And then you go, how the hell did that get there? <laughs> Who put I that? I find there? myself asking right now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. <clears throat> um, so there are many, many examples like that. I've got a whole PowerPoint presentation I put together to kind of introduce people to some of those ideas of Kabbalah and um, what the possible uh, implications of that might be. Because the other part of it is that once you begin looking at these numbers, of course, what you end up with is you've discovered that part of the key to understanding this system is in the ratios between these different numbers. And then you begin to realize um, 
that there is actually geometric correlation. Uh, in the Greek, you have oranos, mesoranos, and theos, right? Now, oranos is the Greek word for heaven. Mesoranos is midheaven, and theos is God. Let me see if I can make, pull this out of my head. Um, if you look at the word theos, it's 291. You look at the word um, oranos, it works out to be 891, and mesoranos is 1136, okay? Actually, let's see. 284, sorry. Theos is 284. So you substitute in the letters, you go, you know, a, a theta, eta, omicron, sigma for theos. You look at uranos, which is omicron, upsilon, sigma, et cetera, et cetera, mesoranos. Substitute the numbers in, the known historically associated numbers with each of those letters. So you get theos is 284, oranos is 891, and mesoranos or midheaven is 1136. Okay, so the the a geometric correlation is this: if you have a, ra a, a circle of diameter uh, or, or or circumference of 891 in round numbers, its diameter is 284. So you picture a circle, the symbol of heaven, the axis of the circle being the diameter 284. That's theos. Then you in, in you uh, enclose the circle in a square. And the perimeter of that square is 1136. So now you have a, a, geo, a geometrical correlation. You see, um, the square is the midheaven enclosing the circle of heaven. And in the middle of that, the axis is theos, God. So that's just an example of the kinds of multiple correlations, geometric correlations that emerge when you start looking at the values of these numbers, when you start substituting in the known known values, and this is all historical stuff. I mean, there's no controversy about that. That 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 those symbol sets were used as numbers as well as uh, phonetic symbols. Um, the question then would be, well, the meaning. Okay, well, sure. Okay, so you can translate the words and the names and the phrases into numbers, but so what? Well, then what? The point is that you know it, it has to be self-validating by virtue of yielding up lots of meaningful correlations. So we can go further with that by developing the geometry. We can actually create templates, if you will, geometric templates. Now here's where it gets interesting because those proportional relationships that are built into those words, names, and phrases that can form geometrical templates now become the very same templates that sacred structures all over the world were built upon. Okay. And it goes further. Those proportional relationships now can be found embedded within the solar system itself. You know, the New Jerusalem, which is the, the objective, the holy city descending from God out of heaven, has the value of 864. Well, 864 um, and its subcomponents like 432, 216, 108, those numbers are all embedded and play a key role in the Veda, in the Vedas. And you can look at the Vedic temples, and they they enshrine those numbers, the very same numbers that we find enshrined in the Bible, in the book of Revelation. And then we find them in the uh, ratios of the solar system, the sizes and distances of the planets. And how did that get there? You know, um, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. But it's there. And anybody who wants to probe into that um, and do their homework with an open mind will realize that there's something else going on there and um i think i need I feel, some hash yeah i know i got you know <laughs> whatever <laughs> maybe some them. maybe some shrooms yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well i have a book by i've just gotten a book by my new friend brian morris 
Moreski, who has written the book, The Immortality Key. Um, he's a friend of, you know, who Graham Hancock is? Yes, sir. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So he's a friend. And so The Immortality Key is the uh, his uh, vast study um, of the uh, ancient mystery cults and traditions, including early mystic Christianity um, and their use of mind-altering substance as part of their, their rituals. And What was and his so name? On. Brian... Um, I'm still learning how to pronounce his last name. Morris, look up the immortality. Yeah, look, key. just look up the immortality key. It's on Amazon. I just put it on a bookmark. Yeah, yeah. So I've just started that. Uh, I had a conversation with him about a week ago. He sent me a copy of the book, um, and I hope to get him on my podcast to talk more about that because that's obviously a subject I'm very interested in. Um, how did you meet Graham, Randall? We were on a. Uh, on a panel together on dra- a Dragon Con about 11 or 12 years ago. That's how okay. I met him. All right, let's go. Dang. Yeah. I went to a Dragon Con on their, I think it was their 25th anniversary. It was some cool stuff, but nothing like that. <laughs> <laughs> nothing like what? <laughs> nothing like that. I, if you guys were oh. there, I probably would have seen you there. Well, we were on a panel. Um, when, let's see, uh, his name, the guy who did, uh, not We Are Change, um, publisher good guy but the other people on the panel were like i don't know where they were coming <laughs> yeah so anyways but yeah so graham and i kind of hit it off and eventually he was going to uh he was researching one uh magicians of the gods and you know in fingerprints of the gods that came out in 95 you know what he was doing is exploring the idea of of a, of a hypothetical mother culture that would have existed in prehistoric times and was whose uh, presence on the earth was pretty much obliterated by uh, catastrophic events. And he was proposing in Fingerprints of the Gods, which I read twenty almost 25 years ago now, I guess, so I'm a little hazy on the details, but the idea was that there was a catastrophe uh, of global proportions, and he drew upon some of the ideas of Charles Hapgood, who theorized that there was a crustal displacement that occurred that was the the cause of the catastrophe. And he got a lot of criticism for that, although he was not adamant or didactic about that idea. He just put that forward as one possibility. Um, He did believe that there was a catastrophe caused by something. Um, And, you know, he kind of drew a little bit, Hapgood sort of drew upon the ideas of Velikovsky a little bit, but... um, you know, the crustal displacement theory, he didn't originate it. Uh, there was a number of other um, researchers. Um, I think what Velikovsky did in the 50s was he proposed an axial shift, but it was the entire planetary mass, whereas Hapgood was talking about a slippage of the of the crust relative to, to the underlying mantle. Um, but then uh, he kind of, you know, went on to other things, got more interested in psychedelics and consciousness change and all of that kind of stuff got away from the idea of for a while of, of a lost civilization and uh, catastrophe and all of that. But then two things uh, reignited his interest in that. One was the discovery of Gobekli Tepe in Turkey, which seemed to date, you know, to 11,000, 12,000 years ago and was very old and, you know, was obviously a very impressive work of megalithic architecture, if you will. Uh, the scale of the thing would have required uh, an enormous mobilization of of manpower. Am I allowed to say that manpower? I 
<laughs> yes. <laughs> I, um, I'll say human power. Okay. <laughs> Listen, I don't want to get you guys blacklisted. I don't um, give two shits. No. Just keep going, man. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> no need for that. Okay. Good. Okay. <laughs> so I'm in like-minded company here. Right. So, um, um, but you know, being, uh, you know, a, a highly respected professional and all, um, I have to, <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm not, so keep I going. Have to be <laughs> <careful>. Okay. <laughs> um, okay, so the two things. Gobekli Tepe, which seemed to be very powerful evidence supporting the idea that there was a whole lot more going on in prehistoric times than had been uh, previously admitted by mainstream academia. And the second thing was the, um, the Younger Dryas Impact Hypothesis, which, uh, you know, was first published uh, by Richard Firestone uh, in 2007 and colleagues. Uh, which proposed that the Younger Dryas boundary uh, of around roughly 12,900 years ago was marked by an impact of a some type of an astronomical body, most likely a comet. And as the theory has evolved, it, it, it uh, most likely was a multiple impact event uh, by Earth count encountering a swarm of uh, cometary debris. And uh, so those two things reignited uh, Graham's interest in in that whole, you know, that, that whole scenario. And so he revisited it and decided that he wanted to get out in the field and see evidence. Now about this time, I've been getting out there and talking on a lot of podcasts about some of the great flooding events that occurred at the end of the last ice age. Um, you know, because of the, this, this very rapid catastrophic meltdown of the great ice sheets. And so he contacted me and and was wanting to know, I don't remember really kind of gotten vague on specifically how the whole thing got set up, but we, uh, I agreed and, uh, you know, jumped at the chance of, of guiding him through some of the, the floodlands. So we started, we did a two week trip from Portland, Oregon to, to Minneapolis, Minnesota. And basically what we did was we followed the margin, the Southern margin of the great ice sheets that would have existed 14,000, 15,000 years ago. The Cordillera ice sheet over Western Canada, mostly centered on the, the Canadian Rockies, extending down into, into Washington state. And then the great Laurentide ice sheet that was centered over Hudson Bay, about the size of the South Polar ice sheet now. Um, but that, that margin, we generally followed that margin looking at the evidence for this cataclysmic melting that happened right at the end when these gigantic literal freshwater tsunamis gushed off the ice sheet and completely re-sculpted the landscape and left this, this amazing, these amazing labyrinthine erosional complexes and things in Eastern Washington, they're called the channel scab lands. And so we traveled together and by the end of the couple of weeks, by the time we got to Minneapolis, we had become good friends and we've stayed in touch ever since. I also uh, accompanied him in some uh, trips to the Southwest. Now, now, so uh, Magicians of the Gods came out. He actually talks about our whole uh, pilgrimage. He, I think he devotes about three chapters to it in there, talking about the um, our trip together. And then, um, then he, because of the time he spent in America, he got really interested in in realizing. And I, I was encouraging him to think about. You know, actually, there's a lot more going on in ancient American history than most people 
realize, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on here. And, you know, I think I was at least partially responsible for introducing him to some of the, um, you know, the lost Pueblo and culture out in the Southwest and the monumental earthwork uh, builders in the uh, uh, Mississippi River Valley and in the Eastern Woodlands. And he got interested enough in all of that um, to write his next book about that, America Before. And uh, so he's he's gone into that. And, and he came to understand that, yeah, America has been, when we start talking about ancient cultures and ancient civilizations, we think Egypt, we think Samaria, we may think China, uh, and so on. But um, you generally don't think of America. But there was a whole lot of stuff going on here that has been overlooked. Um, and it seems to dovetail right in with some of the things that were going on in other parts of the world. So um, this was um, became his next sort of obsession that led to the book America Before. Um, I'm not sure where he's going now. I know he's coming back. I, I'm hoping he. I'm going to be doing a uh, uh, Earth Origins conference in May out in Sedona, Arizona, and uh, he may be showing up at that. I hope he does because cool. I'd sure sure like to see him again. Um, in our chat on the phone, you uh, said that you and uh, Graham visited the Topper site out in Allendale near the Savannah River. Oh yeah, that was a completely separate uh, trip that we did. Uh, yeah, there was a scientific roundtable organized by George Howard, who was one of the founding members of the Comet Research Group and a co-author of that first 2007 seminal paper that proposed a cosmic impact uh, as the trigger of the Younger Dryas catastrophe. And so George Howard organized a scientific roundtable, and we went out there and, and shared ideas about what happened then. And you know, uh, a couple of the, the, the participants that were uh, researching into the Carolina Bays. Um, you're see, I see, Justin, you're nodding your head, so I guess you're familiar with the, the Carolina yeah, Bays. Uh, if you're talking about the Topper site, and I've read that that is potentially pre-Clovis. What do you think about uh, those? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, we went in there with um, Al Goodyear, who is the, the lead paleontologist on the site, and uh, he took us down in there and showed us the Clovis horizon, and uh, told us about how for years people would, while he was excavating there, people would ask him, um, well, is there anything older? And, and he said, well, no, because the Clovis were, were the first here. So he never bothered to look really, because that, that was the working assumption for a long time is that Clovis were the first people presumably coming over during lowered sea level when you could walk across the Bering Land Bridge um, that connected Siberia to Alaska. And... Uh, but then enough people apparently asked him that he decided to take another look and they excavated down about another six feet and guess what? Found another cultural horizon <laughs> and yeah, dated that. And it came out to about, uh, I think if I'm recalling right around 30,000 years old, that was, yeah, it was significant, like 36,000 years, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so we, I had the opportunity to go visit the site. It's on private property, uh, belongs to a, Oh, hell, what do they, I don't remember, it was a corporate property. Yeah, it's had to a, go in it's there. a corporate government property, you know? Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. But Al got us in there, and so he showed us the layers, and uh, yeah, that made it into Graham's book, uh, America oh. Before. And oh. yeah, so I mean, there's a lot more to the, to the ancient America story than has been recognized um, heretofore. Mm-hmm. So I have a quote of yours, Randall. I, I'm going to let you go soon, I promise, but I just got to ask you. That. Okay. Uh, 
uh, you've said yourself that uh, human consciousness engages with the world in ways we're only just beginning to understand. And you've also referred to yourself as a dabbler in the occult. So in your all, your, all of your years of research, in your opinion, what is the connection between ritual and results? Um, well, I've done enough ritual to believe that, you know, that you do uh, affect things through the proper use of ritual. I've got a couple of stories that in a way kind of, you know, when I really got into ritual, a lot of, well, you know, I became a Freemason, um, in 1978 and of course that's all ritual based and i have become convinced you know that at the at the founding or the at the core of freemasonry is um the use of mind-altering substances just like with the eleusinian mysteries and the mithraic mysteries and the mysteries of the kabiri and so on just the, the kind of stuff that brian morescu talks about in the book that i have yet to read um <laughs> But, uh, yeah, I mean, he, he's drawing upon a, uh, a, a, um, predecessors like, uh, Oh, it'll come to me in a second. The sacred mushroom, John Allegro, sacred mushroom and the cross, uh, and others, um, you know, uh, Gordon Wasson and, uh, his co-authors who wrote the Ellicinian mysteries where they believed that, you know, they were concocted some type of a psychedelic potion. And that was part of the, um, part of the whole experience. And, uh, I definitely think that, uh, you know, rituals are enhanced with the use of mind-altering substances. And, you know, in Freemasonry, you know, part of the uh, central part of the, the ritualism and the symbolism is the acacia plant. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but acacia is the, probably the best phyto source of DMT. Um, mm. So a lot of that, you know, and I dab, like I said, I dabbled in rituals back in the 70s and became convinced that they worked. Um, I kind of don't tell some of these stories only because a lot of people go, well, that's just a total subject of co uh, coincidence there. And we come to belief that coincidences do not exist. Yeah. But I had a good friend that was very interested in the Kabbalah and the occult and stuff. This was about 1977 or 78. And there was a place outside of Atlanta, uh, a mountain that has since become civilized but back then it was just a barren mountain it, there was a trail going to the top and we used to just go out there to hang out but we decided we'd been experimenting with rituals we used to there's a hotel in downtown atlanta called the biltmore and uh i i did some remodeling work there probably in about 77 70 late 70s and I had contracts where I would go into some of these units and I would run trim and do all of this stuff, upgrade them, get them ready for, for sale. And so I had a key to the place. And in the after hours, I would sneak up onto the roof. And the only time that I ever believe I had any kind of a UFO experience was my friend uh, and I and one other person, we snuck up on the roof one night and we drew a magic circle and we did a ritual. And while we were doing the ritual, just at the conclusion of the ritual, a light was moving overhead. And I thought, now that is a satellite. Look up there, there's a satellite. And we're looking at the satellite and it's moving. It's This is what it's, and all of a sudden, it hmm. just is moving across the sky relatively slow. And then all of a sudden, it just shoots off. And I thought, now that was weird. <laughs> that was interesting. Now, I wanted it to come back. I wanted to get a closer look, but you know, I've, I've never had a UFO experience. However, that was a very unusual. And the fact that we were up on the roof, it couldn't have been a satellite because the, 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 the change in velocity was so sudden, like what the hell was that? And then the other time we, so, so we'd been doing this together for a couple of months 
and we designed a ritual. Uh, we went up on the top of this mountain. It's a, part of the lower Appalachian chain, kind of an isolated peak. Um, we were the only ones up there. And we went up there and we did this whole invocation to the natural forces and it culminated with a word of power, which we had designed. And it was all based upon the, um, uh, you know what a sigil is? You probably know what a sigil is, Daniel. Um, so we had designed sigil, sigils. We created this word of power. The whole ritual maybe took 40 minutes or so to, to do the whole thing. Chalked it out on the ground on a big flat slab of rock. It was probably granite. Performed the ritual. The end of it was after this invocation. Um, oh, what was it? The, uh, you know, it involved the, the cup. We had the sword. We had the pantacle um, and so on. And the end of it, the culmination of it that all led up to was the, the, the uttering of the word of power. So we get up there. It's a beautiful day clear skies and we start into the ritual and as we're doing the ritual these dark clouds start rolling in right <laughs> and we'd we'd check the weather because we thought you know it was going to be yeah we'll go up there today because you know good weather clouds start rolling in and this i exaggerate not i i'm not embellishing at all the instant we muttered the word of power a huge bolt of lightning comes down and strikes the base of the mountain <laughs> And it completely blew our minds. And then we're, we're, wow, now that was a bizarre coincidence. And then just like the heavens opened up and it just started, it started pouring rain. I mean, we're trying to get our way down the mountain. We can't see 10 feet in front of us because it's raining so hard. We kindly, we got to his, his van and we got, it was raining so hard. We got in the van. We couldn't leave because it was raining so hard. Visibility was 20 feet and that was it. And, uh, after that, I think started thinking. Now, was this a coincidence? Of course, it was a coincidence. Of course, it was a coincidence. But what a hell of a coincidence it was, you know. <laughs> and then I played around with some of the, um, oh, the Necronomicon, which you may be familiar with, of yeah. course, a bit, and uh, got some rather strange results. Uh, maybe Catul, who might have visit, started visiting me in my dreams, and. <laughs> in uh, some pretty impressive ways. Are you um, to blame for this wacky world we're living in? No, no. <laughs> I'm innocent. Uh, I'm entirely innocent. I'm just, <laughs> hey, I'm just a passive spectator. <laughs> Although maybe at a few key moments here and there, I might've pushed a, a button or two, but <laughs> you know, so. You so well, oh, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, I've been talking a lot. I guess you mentioned UFOs and uh, you left your higher side. You were on the higher side chat. So I told you I was a fan of that show. And that's where one of my first times listening to you. Okay. Um, you hint, you left the, your last episode on a cliffhanger saying that you would return and discuss your thoughts on the UFO phenomena and how it may not be something widely considered. So you haven't Correct. been back on the higher side and you're on here. So tell us about it. Well, um, it's not what people think it is. It's there are now there are, you know, look, uh, the U S military, uh, tests, uh, experimental aircraft. That's part of it. Um, uh, there are anomalous, uh, effects caused by geomagnetism fluctuations in the energy fields in which we all are immersed that can induce, um, 
experiences, visions, and so forth, sounds, audible sounds, um, stress is accumulating along fault lines, can actually cause ionization of the atmosphere, those kinds of things. Um, Paul Devereaux, uh, the Dragon Project in England, has done some very interesting work along those lines, showing the sighting of megalithic structures, um, how they cluster along fault lines in the intersection of fault lines in the crust, and how stresses can be propagated along those fault lines and interestingly gets into the idea of tidal forces manifesting in the in the crust i mean you know that the moon creates tides in the ocean very visible tides in the ocean right what's less understood is the the hydrosphere the the realm of subterranean waters that is also being affected by not only the moon primarily the moon but not only the moon but the sun and actually all of the planetary bodies in the solar system uh, can sometimes uh, interact in each other's ways where they constructively uh, uh, accentuate each other or otherwise perhaps they um, cancel each other out. So you might have constructive amplification of, of their influence. And I know this somewhat sounds like astrology, but it really just gets down to, you know, to, to geophysics. Um, and the idea that, that, these forces can accumulate in the earth's crust and lead to uh, experiences because it's been shown that ionization of the atmosphere can actually uh, have effects on the, the, the hippocampus region of the brain, which is where we store primordial memories and so on. So there's that component. And then there's the third component that can't be explained by either one of those. That's obviously not terrestrial experimental aircraft and it's not visions induced uh, hallucinatory, say hallucinatory visions induced by, uh, like say geomagnetic field. Um, and that's the, the, maybe the 10%, the 15% that can't be explained by anything else. It really does appear to be some highly advanced technology, um, and, uh, that can't be explained by anything else. And that's the thing that I'm basically saying, uh, is not what people think it is. So at this point, um, it may be premature to talk about that. We'll revisit that in a few years. We can revisit it because it's going (laughs) to be, see, here's the thing. If I'm right, it's going to be a game changer. And my insight into this matter is not so much focused on UFOs per se, but by immersing myself in the legacy of archaic traditions that's been handed down to us from primordial times. Now, I'll I'll say, for example, this, we know we can go into the Bible and we can read the story of Noah and the flood, right? We can go into the um, Sumerian and Chaldean traditions, and we can read about Zisithrus or uh, Utnapishtim, or we can go into the Greek traditions and we can read the stories of Deucalion or the Vedic traditions of Manu or even Native American traditions. There's at least 100, maybe 200 stories of world-destroying floods that have occurred. In okay, Now, those are generally considered to have been, up until recent times, those have generally been considered to be, um, you know, probably memories of some catastrophic but strictly local flood. You know, oh, well, the biblical story of the flood was essentially a retelling of the much earlier Sumerian story, which was first, uh, I think it was in the 11th chapter of the Gilgamesh tales, right? Um, and then that was based upon probably a really bad flood that happened in the Tigris-Euphrates Valley sometime. And, 
you know, possibly left this thick layer of alluvium that was uh, discovered by Sir Leonard Woolley when he was doing the excavations there in, in Samaria and probably in the, uh, in the ruins of the city of Ur. And so the problem with that, though, is that like in the case of the Native American tradition, uh, you know, George Caitlin, the Indian artist who spent something like 30 years traveling amongst Native American tribes, visited over 100 tribes in his career as an Indian artist. And in his book, Last Ramblings, he calls it Last Ramblings Among the the, the Indians of, of North America, something like that. He, I have a copy of the book here. Um, but he uh, he goes into, in the, in the final chapter, he goes into talking about his his insights gleaned from having, you know, learned uh, about all of these divergent and disparate tribes, talking about the, 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 the diversity of their, of their belief systems and their rituals and their uh, social mores and all of this stuff, their, their languages, you know, I mean, there's an amazing uh, diversification of languages amongst Native Americans that's kind of inexplicable in its own right. But he said one thing, that they all had in common, every tribe he visited, was that they were descended from the uh, their ancestors, they were descended from ancestors who survived a great world destroying. Now, the only limited commentary I've seen on that is basically dismissive in the sense that, oh, well, obviously they heard the stories, the biblical tale from missionaries and grafted it onto their particular religious belief, their religious systems. The problem with that is, is that a lot of these tribes, in fact, maybe even a majority of these tribes that Caitlin, George Caitlin visited, he was the first white man they'd ever seen. They clearly did not get those traditions from missionaries, mm-hmm. right? Well, now you've got that whole, that whole lineage of, of, of stories gleaned from all over the world. Well, now we have the modern science of paleohydrology that looks at uh, fluvial events in earth history. And what do you suppose is now being documented over and over again? Gigantic floods on a scale that's almost inconceivable. And what you realize is that, okay, we've got two competing models here in the, in, in, in the mainstream. One is that, okay, modern academia will say, okay, well, this is all based upon a a bad flood, but it was strictly a local phenomena, right? Would have been easy to survive. The other end of the spectrum is the evangelical interpretation that there was some supernatural flood that uh, r- the waters rose up and drowned all the highest mountains. <clears throat> what was the source of that water is left unexplained because you don't need an explanation because it's supernatural. What happened to the water in the aftermath is left unexplained. So that becomes for modern science, uh, pretty much of a, uh, of a straw man. Okay. Well, we know that that couldn't have happened. But what paleohydrology tells us is that there have been floods whose peak discharges can only be measured in hundreds of millions of cubic feet per second. Now, what that means is, is that if you survived a flood of 500 million cubic feet or even a billion cubic feet per second, by some quirk, by some luck of the draw, your world would not exist anymore. That world... That world that you that you inhabited was gone. Um, I mean, because we're literally talking about floods that could wipe out an entire state. Now, this is not science fiction. This is now verified 
from the evidence of the field. And every year that goes by, more evidence is coming along to confirm that there have been these inconceivably huge floods in the geological record. And clearly, it's floods on this scale that have been the source of the tales that have come down to us, right? So here's what I'm getting at. We are willing to now, if we're, if we're educated about these matters, we are willing to concede that the tales have a historological basis, right? That, that, that there actually was something in history. They're not just completely made up or conjured out of, you know, oh, there was a, you know, the Tigris-Euphrates Valley had a flood and, you know, right. Okay, that happened, obviously. Right. But, you know, where I took Graham, we, we, we go to a place called Grand Coulee now or a place called Drumheller Channels. Now, in Drumheller Channels, you've got a, 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 a what it is, it's like an extinct riverbed. And the river that was flowing through there was nine miles wide and 400 feet deep. Now, there's no river on earth that even comes close to that, and that water is moving at between 50 and 60 miles per hour. And by the time that flood is passed over the landscape, it's stripped out 500 to 1,000 feet of bedrock is gone. And you go 50 miles down current, and you find that bedrock spread out in a debris fan covering two or 3,000 square miles of boulders the size of, of minibuses, right? So this is the kind of stuff that we're finding all over the world. And there have been multiple gigantic mega floods, um, which I would attribute to primarily to two things, mega tsunamis and mega meltwater events. Uh, clearly, the melting of the great ice sheets that occurred during the late Quaternary, the late Pleistocene, down to about 12,000 years ago, you have to bear in mind that roughly double the amount of glacier mass on the earth today, including Antarctica, Greenland, and every mountain glacier, you have to at least double that, even more than that, to get the amount of ice amassed on the continental surfaces 13, 14, 15 to 20,000 years ago. Now, here's the thing. In a very short period of time, that ice melted away in, in, in orders of magnitude faster than anybody had ever imagined possible, even a generation or two ago. So where does this leave us? Well, again, what I'm getting at here, and then I'm kind of in a big roundabout circle, coming back to your question, Justin. All right. We go and we can look at these stories now of great floods and realize that there's a historical basis to those. Okay. And they are probably some of the most ubiquitous stories that have come down to us through the mythical venues, right? But what is the other element of these stories that have come down to us? Uh, probably as prominently as the flood myth. That would be the idea of the gods, the gods that come from the sky and teach humanity various skills and then go away, right? Right. In fact, in the Sumerian account, the gods specifically leave uh, as a reaction to the cataclysm because the cataclysm that the that the Sumerian flood myths are describing, the, the, uh, the great flood of Utnapishtim, that the 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 events the storm and flood that 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 described was so ominous and so severe and so powerful that it even unnerved and instilled fear in the gods and what did they do they left now that brings me to the question of okay as ubiquitous as are the flood stories and behind those flood stories there is a reality right 
as ubiquitous as those flood stories are the stories of the gods. Now, what is the history? What is the actual history that's being concealed in those stories of the gods? Where there's smoke, there's usually fire. Yeah. So that to me is kind of uh, what led me into thinking, what was the connection? And of course, this even goes back to the work of Jacques Vallée and others. What is the connection then between those stories of the gods, for example, and maybe even filtering this through the, the Jungian archetypes model. But what is the connection between those stories of the gods from tens of thousands of years ago and the modern UFO experience? Mm -hmm. And I think one is actually the, uh, is, is possibly, in fact, I even go more than that and say probably the solution to the other. And that's where we have to be looking. And that's why I say it is uh, not necessarily what people think it is. And I might have a quote here, and we could perhaps even, if I have it handy here, um, it's a great quote from a work uh, published in the 20th century that I suspect contains the, um, a possible, uh, here we go. This is it. From a book written by Valencia E. Straten, The Celestial Ship of the North. Uh, let's, maybe I'm not. <laughs> if I'm supposed to read it, I will probably find it within the next K. Yes, here we go. Now just, I'll leave you guys to ponder this. This is a great cliffing. The Celestial Ship of the North, published in 1927. Now this is by Valencia E. Straten, who immersed herself into the ancient stories and traditions um and she quotes this one particular tradition and here's 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 what it says this is from page 117 there is a tradition that the first great tree of earth was hung with clusters of beautiful stars or constellations and that certain human beings climbing ever higher and higher reached the uppermost branches there were others who stayed below and thus, the trunk of the tree was divided in two. Those human beings in the branches remaining above in the heavens, while those below had their roots in the earth. The quote goes on, but... That's something to ponder. That is something to ponder, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Randall, I could probably talk to you till midnight, but I am not going to hold you hostage any longer. If no one else has any questions for Randall, that is... Will you I don't come wanna... back? Yeah, we got to sure, come man. back. Sure, man. <laughs> Yeah, this Thanks. has been fun. I can always, yeah. Of course, sure. can, yeah, we got to do this again. All right. So, uh, so when will this go live? I will have it up probably by the end of the week. Okay, and I'll, uh, cool. Edit it and make it nice and pretty and send it to you. Good. Um, I'd like to just say something about what I'm currently involved in before we, oh, please, sure. yeah, 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 sure. Before yeah. we go, um, you know, I got a podcast that I'm doing now where I, it's called Cosmographia, and we get into, uh, up to this point, we've stayed pretty much into the geological realm, but what I'm doing is I've devoted uh, a lot of time to really establishing the scientific basis to like the Younger Dryas impact ideas, the, the giant mega floods, looking at that in detail. I think we're up to 56, 57 episodes now. Wow. Um, been doing it about a year. The first four or five episodes, I'm doing it a line-by-line analysis of Plato's dialogues on Atlantis, Timaeus and Critias which I think is very interesting. And I try to address the question of whether or not there is geological or scientific validity to it. And I have my own take on the whole Atlantis uh, story. Um, 
which is founded pretty much in hard geology, you know. Um, but uh, and then I'm partnering with a uh, a company, uh, a, a a new uh, internet platform called HowTube that I think is going to play a very important role in the coming years with all of the censorship and restriction mm-hmm. of free speech that's going on with all of the others. And this particular platform is dedicated to free speech and the free exchange of ideas and so on. And, uh, which we're going to definitely need those alternatives. Uh, yes, and, and so if people go to my webpage, which is just randallcarlson.com, you can scroll down and you'll see some links, how to, and there's a declaration on there. Uh, if you read the declaration, sort of the idea, the principles, the guiding principles behind the founding of, of how to, and there's actually a form that you can fill out. And if you fill that out, then basically as we move forward, we'll keep you in the loop of everything that, that, that's evolving and happening. Yes, um, the, the rollout of the site is going to happen next month. And it's been three and a half years in development. There's a whole team of extremely talented people dedicated to the idea of the free exchange of, of ideas and knowledge. And like I said, it's going to be rolling out um, next month. And uh, I think if people check that out and go to my website, I have to say due to circumstances, disappointing circumstances, I've had to disassociate with the website that at one point was hosting my work called sacred geometry international. Um, and that's, a, a, a I'm going to have to have, get into that at some point. So people understand what's going on there. Gotcha. Um, there's a lot of my work still there, but, um, the sales of, of my stuff and the use of my name and my image, there's not authorized. So, uh, I'm not going to get into that now, other than the fact that I am no longer associated with that. So if people want anything, Randall Carlson, go to randallcarlson.com and that's mm. everything that's coming up and we're, you know, that's in the pipeline right now. That's where it's going to be found. Cool. And we got some, yeah, and we got some great stuff. It is a cool website. It looks brand new, like days old. Yeah. You I, checked I think the last out. time I visited your website, it did not look anything like this. No, no, this is definitely <laughs> an upgrade and this is part of, you know, partnering with how to, because I've got their whole team now. Um, gotcha. I'm working with, so, um, it's kicked kick this thing up to the next level for sure. And, um, oh yeah, we got stuff in the pipeline. That's going to be game changing. At least I like to think it's going to be because we need some game changing things. Uh, about yeah. Now. yeah. You got that right. Yes, sir. Yeah. Well, Hey, we need to get together and hang out sometime. Again. Yes. Uh, we, exactly. we will do this again. We're not, we're not that far away. We should, uh, meet up for, uh, you meet up. Yeah. For real. We, we got a deal. You're in Decatur. We're in Augusta. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, last year I built a restaurant called the wheelhouse craft pub and kitchen. You guys come up to Decatur and we'll have lunch or dinner there. Ian, the proprietor, I'm actually a partner in the restaurant now. And, uh, I traded out, um, project management, uh, for a piece of the action and, um, he's Ian is a great guy. He's really on board with, you know, all of these things that are happening. And, um, we've had some interesting gatherings there and are going to continue to do so. But if you guys, you know, over the next month, couple of months or whatever, if you can get over here to Decatur, we can go hang out there. We'll have, have dinner there. Um, sure. Yeah. It's a date. Hell yeah. You'll see us. Cool. Yeah. We'll be, we'll be and, in touch, and you, Randall. And you can even, even bring David. Yeah. David, David can come too. Yeah, David can come too. Yeah. Good to go. Good to go. So, Justin, how long have you been growing your hair, man? Uh, this is about two and a half years. That's a lot of hair for two and a half years. Yeah. 
it's pretty it's pretty decent i rip yeah. too much out of it when i'm trying to brush it I probably oh, be a little yeah. bit longer well i went i went from 1968 to 1983 without a haircut 15 years yeah 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 and then one day i said okay i've made my point <laughs> whatever <laughs> that was I maybe made i'll get point. there yeah <laughs> somewhere somewhere in one of my closets here there's a four foot braid um oh nice yeah probably <laughs> need to you incorporate that into some ritual working or something i was gonna I say you better keep that safe yeah, for real. yeah right right <laughs> well guys hey it's been great hanging out with you guys thank, and, dude, uh, thank you yeah we we're doing this again yeah so yeah lots of knowledge thanks man well justin when you get, get it up send me a uh send me a link yeah um do you guys have any idea like how many views it expect? Yeah, probably we we got a couple thousand listeners, so okay. Yeah, there's nothing. We're not Joe Rogan. Rogan. We're not Joe Rogan. I'm going to tell you that. Well, there's... wait a second. Now. I, I thought you guys had at least ten or eleven million. No, no, no. thousand. Yeah, not we're in the thousands. Time. We're not. Yeah, we're not, the, not there yet, huh? We're fairly right, and new. It's, it's not immediate. It 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 comes and goes, basically depending on the work week and stuff like that. If it's a holiday or anything. Sure. It, you sure. get the clicks. Cool. I. Yeah, well, look, that's that's my, not, not my criteria. Criteria when when I first talked to Justin, it sounded like you guys were pretty cool guys, and I thought, yeah, yeah, I'd like to hang out with those guys. <laughs> oh, so I'll man, anytime, dude, anytime. <laughs> All right, guys. All right, Randall, have a good it's one. It's been man. great. You have a good evening, man. Awesome. See ya.